Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another Energy Geoscience podcast. My name is Rochelle Kernan, and today I have a very special guest, Dr. Ken Miller, a distinguished professor from Earth and Planetary Sciences at Rutgers University. Hi, Ken. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Rachel? Good, good. Thank you so much for being here. I know uh, we're really excited to talk to you and really glad that you could fit us into your schedule. It's great to be here. Great. So to get started today, could you please tell our audience a bit about yourself, perhaps why you chose geology as a career path, and where your career as a professor has taken you? So I started out, like many in my generation, interested in space and the oceans, this post-Sputnik era. And when I went time I was ready for university, I knew I wanted to major in oceanography. Uh, but you really don't major in oceanography. You had to pick a basic science, biology, physics, chemistry, or earth and planetary sciences. So I ended up studying earth and planetary sciences and falling in love with deciphering the history of the earth and particularly sea level change and what it can tell us about the past. But not only the stories of the past, but also where are some of the resources and what can we do with this? Predicting uh, risks from the earth, but also predicting where we can uh, get various kinds of resources. So I went off, my undergraduate degree was in geological sciences and I went to uh, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and MIT, in a joint program in oceanography and studied basically ancient oceans. And so my PhD is officially in oceanography and my undergraduate degree is in geological sciences. That's great. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Could you tell us more about um, sort of your career path? So once you finished college, what steps did you take to eventually become a professor? Well, when I, I studied at Woods Hole for four years to get a PhD, studying the history of deep water circulation between about 40 million years ago and 20 million years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had also started at Rutgers analyzing sea level changes from that similar time. Mm -hmm. And so when I re received my degree, I went to Lamont Darty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, first as a postdoc and then as a research scientist for seven years. Okay. And I developed a program studying both sea level and the deep ocean circulation over the past 65 plus million years. And after being at Lamont for about uh, seven years, a job opening came up at Rutgers and I applied and was happy to go back there where I'd done my undergraduate work. And so I've been a professor at Rutgers since uh, 1988, mm. and there we focused in on using the New Jersey continental margin, well, really the mid-Atlantic continental margin, everywhere from off of New York, off of uh, New Jersey, off of Delaware, off of Maryland, to uh, provide a record of sea level changes. And so I guess we're known for having developed uh, the first academic version of a sea level record for the past 65 million years. And again, that tells us a lot about, it gives us an ability to predict mm -hmm. uh, what's below the sea floor. And then about 10 years ago, we got involved in carbon storage potential of this region. 
-hmm. So the deeper strata there are particularly well-suited for carbon storage. So that's a project we've been working on in addition to our sea level changes for about the past 10 years. Sure. Oh, that's great. Um, that's amazing background. Uh, one of your core research activities is participating or was participating in offshore scientific cruises. Could you tell us more about those expeditions and what specifically you were doing out in the ocean? Well, we did three different things, one of which is we explored mapping the subsurface with sonograms of the Earth with seismic profiles. But once you get those, they look down into the Earth and they allow you to see strata in our case that are, you know, more older than the death of the dinosaurs. And, and that's really my particular interest is the last 66 million years since when the dinosaurs died. Sure. Uh, but we also sampled them. So we used a submersible album mm. to sample some of those strata. And so one of my favorite stories is my second son was born in 1989 when I was diving in the Alvin one mile off of New Jersey. It was an unexpected birth, obviously. <laughs> but I was in the submersible and we were sampling outcrop samples uh, to be able to look at the ages of the fossils in them. And from the age of the fossils, we were then able to determine where these strata were deposited and, and again, their age. Um, but the way to really do that best is then to drill or continuously core. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved in, uh, back in the day, it was called the Deep Sea Drilling Project. I went on the next to last expedition of that to drill off of New Jersey, what was called the New Jersey Transact. Uh, that was when I was a postdoc in, in 82. Mm -hmm. And in uh, 1992, 10 years later, we came back with the next generation drill ship called the Joides Resolution. And we drilled on the New Jersey Continental Slope and got a record of, of, of the same strata, but in more detail. And finally, in 2009, we returned with the uh, International Ocean Discovery Program using a mission-specific platform. It's a jack-up rig. It's basically a barge that lifts itself out of the water. Mm -hmm. And we put a drill rig on that, and we're able to drill uh, 700 meters uh, over 2,000 feet uh, below the seafloor on the continental shelf off New Jersey to try to piece together a sea-level story. Mm -hmm. So much of our activity, we started this in... Again, 1982, and then we're still we're still at it. Uh, in 2016, my colleague, collaborator on a lot of these, Greg Mountains, collected what we call a very high-resolution, three-dimensional survey in the area we had drilled. Mm -hmm. We're now able to like peel back the layers and show how sea levels influenced our beaches through time. So one of the things of concern is sea level continues to rise and continues to accelerate in the 21st century is how our shorelines are going to respond. And we have natural experiments in the ancient record where we can take those seismic profiles, as we call them, and show through time how the beaches have evolved in response to sea level change. So here we are over 30 years later and still out doing this but trying to really get a much better handle on, again, the evolution of, of sea level and how the 
the region around here has responded to sea level changes? Sure. So um, I know that obviously um, it's important for us to understand, you know, where and how sea level is going to rise from like an academic standpoint. But could you tell our audience uh, specifically why uh, studying sea level rise would be important to know for communities like along the coast? Well, the region around here is not just experiencing global sea level rise. Global sea level rise is uh, today at about an inch a decade. It's, it's mm -hmm. slow but insidious, yep. but it's accelerating. And it's going to be, from our studies, we're able to make a projection that sea level will like very likely be rising in over 10 centimeters, three times faster um, uh, uh, 10 centimeters per year. That's three inches per decade by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. And that combines, though, with the fact that the margin that we live on, where the ocean meets the shore, is sinking, subsiding. It's mm -hmm. subsiding due to two effects. And one is a giant, it's actually like a giant seesaw. There's a huge ice sheet came down, covered New York City 20,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. That ice sheet melted and receded, and all that's left is Greenland. But as it did that, the area which was weighted down by that ice sheet starts to go up. Well, mm -hmm. if something goes up, something has to come down. And that area coming down is the area the Mid-Atlantic Continental Margin and it is sinking at a little bit more than a centimeter per year. The third effect is the Venice effect. One of the reasons why Venice is so threatened by sea level rise is because they were pumping out tons of groundwater. Mm. And when you take groundwater out, you can do that in your backyard, right? You jump up and down on the ground and water comes out and you're sinking. Mm -hmm. So this, we call it substance. It's caused by also groundwater extraction. So we've drilled a number of holes onshore and offshore, and particularly the onshore holes have been very helpful for us to reconstruct what the story I just told you. It's not a story. It's a fact mm -hmm. that we can quantify the global effect. We can quantify this so-called like seesaw effect, and we can quantify the effect due to groundwater extraction. And then by knowing the past, so one thing that's, skeptics will say is that it's part of a natural cycle. I can tell you from looking at sea level rise and sea level colored glasses that the rise that we see in sea level today, uh, the global rise, is not part of a natural cycle. It really began in the 20th century and is accelerating. And so we can tell that by looking at ancient records, by looking at marshes New Jersey is a great place. Cheesequake mm -hmm. Marsh, marshes down in Tuckerton, where we go and take samples, short cores, and reconstruct the past 10,000 years. And we can say that sea level uh, was not globally rising in the past two 2,000 years or so until the 20th century, when humans' release of CO2 caused the temperature to rise, temperature makes sea level uh, seawater expand but it also melts the ice 
So in the 20th century, about half the effect was due to uh, warming of the oceans and about half of it was due to melting of ice. But here in about 2023, about a third of it is due to temperature and two thirds of it is due to ice. And as the ice sheets continue to melt faster and faster, we will see more of a rate of increase in sea level rise. So all that comes from understanding the past is the key to the future. And by looking at past sea level changes, we can tell you what the rates were, what the natural processes causing it were, as opposed to what's happening today. Sure. Thank you so much for that comprehensive explanation. It really makes a lot of sense. And then one other question that I have that's kind of, you know, related to that is the overprint of intense storms. Can you explain to our audience why storms might be more intense or appear to have more damage now with those set of circumstances along the shoreline? So perhaps my favorite example, or least favorite in one way, is Sandy, who kicked our butts here. And, mm -hmm. you know, it caused nearly $100 billion worth of damage. Over 200 people lost their lives in, in this area. If Sandy had hit in 1912 mm -hmm. instead of 2012, there would have been about 80,000 New Jerseyans who would not have been flooded. Oh, wow. And the reason why is sea level didn't rise that much. Atlantic City was a foot and a half in, 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 uh, uh, at the Battery in New York. It was about a foot. But that's like saying, that's like burying somebody up to their neck in sand and the tide's coming and said, oh, don't worry. It's only going to be this much. Just It's just going to come up a foot. Yeah. So that foot really made a difference to those 80,000 people. Mm -hmm. Now, no one storm can be attributed to global change, but Sandy is a good example, Superstorm Sandy, of how the changes that we have seen in climate, in particular temperature, uh, played a role. First of all, that October, the oceans were unusually warm. We keep hearing about these extreme temperatures that we are experiencing, and they are real, and they're in the data. Uh, and when the oceans are warmer, storms feed off of that. And the warmer they are, the more energy there is to feed storms. And so hurricanes are becoming more intense at the upper end. They may not be more frequent. That's another story. Uh, in terms of storm surges, so when a storm comes in, you have the effect of the storm itself, which piles water up, and because a storm, any storm is a low pressure system, sea level rises from that and you're piling water up, okay? So that's mm -hmm. called storm, storm surge, and that gets added on to the normal tidal cycle. And Sandy obviously hit during a, a uh, higher portion of the tidal cycle, uh, during what we would call astronomical high tides, um, sometimes called spring tides. Uh, and that added to, together to make it a particularly bad flooding event. But we also see that this increase in storm intensity means that you have increased storm surges. So we have been analyzing the beaches uh, that Sandy Hook or actually have a very good record 
of storms over the past 20 years. So we just submitted a paper this, uh, this year that shows that the intensity of those storms is in fact increasing and the effect on the beaches is increasing. Mm -hmm. So it is a great concern. Yeah, it definitely is. Thank you so much for sharing uh, that in more detail with our audience. Hopefully some people were able to make some connections there. So let's go back earlier uh, in this discussion, you had been talking about uh, CO2 storage. So why don't we go back to that topic? I'm really glad that you brought it up and you know something about it to share with our audience. So when it comes to storing CO2 in the offshore, is there a general recipe for success? Well, you need, first of all, carbon storage itself is going to be a vital part going forward of our recipe for addressing climate change. Uh, we can do a lot of things, increase conservation. We can uh, move toward non-carbon generating electrical. I drive, a, I drive an electric car. I have solar panels in my house. And they're, they're all important and critical steps we do. Mm -hmm. One critical tool, and it won't be the whole solution, but one of a dozen or so that we have to do is to, to capture carbon dioxide. It's easiest done from a PowerPoint plant, uh, point sources, they sometimes are called, uh, but it can be taken from the air too. Uh, but once you capture that carbon dioxide, what do you do with it? You can try to make it into rock, and that's been successfully done in Iceland. The basalts, the black rocks that make up Iceland, I think most people have seen Iceland as this mm -hmm. wonderful land of fire and ice with its black rocks. Mm -hmm. Those basalts act like sponges. Mm -hmm. We have some of those here in, in the mid-Atlantic U.S. region, but what we have even better are large sandstone reservoirs. So what a reservoir is, something that can store fluids or gas or things in between, which are called supercritical uh, fluids, which, which CO2 will be pumped into the underground as a supercritical fluid. So the first part of the recipe that you have to have is a place to store it. Mm -hmm. And it has to have a fair amount of pore space so if you go to the beach, you know, if you pour water onto the beach, the water disappears. If you walk <laughs> across the clay outside of my house, you pour water on it, it sits there. It's <laughs> yep. a bit different, okay? So you need to have, you can think of it, you need to have beach sand. Literally, is the best stuff, right? Yeah. So there are, we, these reservoirs can sometimes contain oil, so you can sometimes contain gas. So in the Gulf of Mexico, that those are the regions that have been explored since the 1930s in the offshore to pump oil out of these sandstone reservoirs. Mm -hmm. You also need the second part of the recipe, which is the trap or the cap rock, okay? Or the seal. They all mean the same thing. Uh, the seal keeps it in. And so think about taking those beach sands and putting a layer of clay, very thick layer of clay on top of them. It will trap anything that's in there. And so we need to have these seals and we need to have the reservoirs. So it turns out that the offshore region, there are places you can do this onshore. 
uh, in New Jersey. So if you go to Cape May, if you go down uh, in that general Cape May Peninsula, you could pump supercritical CO2 into the ground. Uh, it has to be at least 3,000 feet deep okay. in order for this process to work. You have to store it, and the CO2 has to be under sufficient pressure that it maintains its state as something called a supercritical fluid. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, you compress the gas, it almost becomes like a liquid, and it goes in and is stored in these reservoirs. Mm -hmm. Problem with doing this onshore, of course, is some people do, don't want that under their backyard. <laughs> uh, plus, the the, the, the politics, particularly, is of putting things in or out of the ground in a heavily populated state like New Jersey, as you can expect, would be extremely difficult. Yep. Even in places where the culture, let's say Western Pennsylvania or Wyoming, uh, where extraction of oil and gas is commonplace and people are used to it, there are still concerns about putting things underground. But we have ideal. Uh, sediments or sedimentary rocks, sandstones of what they are. They're the ancient beach sands, essentially, uh, that lie off of our coast. And in particular, there's one region about 60 miles offshore, uh, which is, it should have been a great place to get oil and gas, but as it turned out, mm -hmm. all the oil and gas was not trapped uh, because it was intruded uh, by some rocks called the Great Stone Dome, and it vented all the oil and gas out uh, 100, uh, over 100 million years ago, 140 to be precise. And yet it has these great reservoirs and these great caps mm -hmm. or great seals. So we've been involved with Battelle National Laboratories uh, in a project initially evaluating all the onshore potential of the mid uh, mid part of the United States, okay, the, the Midwest and the mid-Atlantic uh, region from Delaware, New Jersey, and New York uh, for about 10 years. And so we developed these ideas. I just presented to you that the onshore, well, you can do it there and you can, you can do it in Western Maryland. You can do it in Western Pennsylvania, potentially. Uh, but to do it onshore in the mid-Atlantic states would be very difficult. And, but if we go offshore, we have the ideal situation. Yeah. So one of the questions is, you know, how much more expensive is it to go offshore? So we did an analysis of this in the past uh, few years, couple of years. We published a paper on this where we showed, yes, it's a little bit more expensive. You have to build a pipeline or a docking station on the bottom, which is docked from the ships to do this, okay? Uh, but the pipeline is just, it's not carrying oil or gas, it's carrying supercritical CO2, which is piped from the onshore where it's captured. So there's an idea to build a power plant in Linden, but it could be built anywhere along the coastline. And the pipeline would carry this supercritical CO2 to 60 miles or 80 miles offshore, and then it will be piped down over 3,000 feet into these great sands. They're called the Logan Canyon sands, as the geologists have named them. And these Logan Canyon sands 
can store an incredible amount of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So do you know of any um, concerted effort to establish a CO2 storage hub, like at a specific location along the East Coast? Um, or what would, if not, what would still need uh, to happen for that to actually take place? I'm, I guess I'm just thinking of, you know, the big Northern Lights project in Norway. Do you envision something like that coming to the East Coast of the U.S. at some point? It, it could. And if we had been a little bit more visionary, we would have made progress to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, there are economical and political challenges to doing this. Yeah. Uh, it's being very successfully done at the Petronova facility, which went online in 2017 in Texas. Now there, they're pumping it in to deplete. They're actually using it for enhanced oil recovery. Yes. Mm -hmm. Good that they're putting it down there, but they are bringing more oil up. We wouldn't be doing that. In this mm -hmm. region, there is no oil or and very limited gas. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the real reality was that this was proposed uh, by a a power developer uh, out of Boston uh, called SCS in 2009, and they were going to self-capitalize and build this plant to a cost of about, well, they thought that they could make money by building a $5 billion plant because you can't build plants for very, very readily in this region because the regulations are very expensive. So it was going to be expensive to build a plant. Why not do it right and capture 90% of the carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and pipe this 60 miles offshore? So in their business model, they had a plan to do this. And the plant was going to be about $5 billion. The pipeline was $700 million of that $5 billion. And they were going to a pipe it from Linden, New Jersey, uh, to the offshore, and it they were going to self capitalize, and this was two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, and three things happened. One, they did this in anticipation of some price being put on carbon, which is reasonable. That has never happened, and still has not happened. Uh -huh. It may be happening as we need to move forward and put a price on carbon. Yeah. Whether or not you do that through a, a a cap and trade, or whether or not you do it through a carbon tax, it's that's another discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that happened was, of course, in two thousand and nine, we had the economic collapse, and so capitalization of five billion dollars, which they thought they could do in the previous year, became impossible. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, it was uh, it was vehemently opposed. Uh, by a number of organizations in New Jersey, uh, including Governor then Governor Christie, who took a very negative uh, approach to this. So the plant, the idea to do this died, but it is still a really great idea that, that needs to be revived. Were it to be revived and moved toward implementation, you have to have a favorable economic climate. So doing it in the middle of a recession is usually not possible, but mm -hmm. also you need to have a regulatory climate that encourages it as 
I mentioned Governor Christie. Uh, he put in a regulatory climate, which was very encouraging of offshore wind, as has his successors in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And offshore wind is moving toward implementation. Uh, that's not without controversy either, but I think in this case, uh, the footprint on the offshore would be minimal, even less so than offshore wind. One of our colleagues in this project, David Goldberg from Lamont Darty Earth Observatory has suggested that you actually could combine wind opportunities with the um, opportunity to, to put this material into the ground, but there will be objections uh, as there are objections to offshore wind. And so that's the, the uh, political and also social aspects to it. When the original plan was to do this in Linden, it would have really helped Linden's economy. But in terms of social justice, Linden is probably one of the most affected towns in New Jersey by industrialization. And it has a long history of being taken advantage of by chemical companies and oil companies. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know when you if you drive through New Jersey, have you ever driven through New Jersey? <laughs> no, that's the one place I have never been. Nope. <laughs> well, if you land at Newark Airport, you're very close to Linden. And if you drive on the New oh. Jersey Turnpike from New York to Philadelphia, the place you often roll your window up and go, boy, this place mm, <laughs> uh, is Linden. Okay. <laughs> so actually, when this came out, despite the fact that the community would have benefited there were objections raised by the citizens there, uh, again, saying that we don't want this. In all fairness, they, I, I can fully understand that, although the plan was to take a what is now a Superfund site and to clean it up, and in the process of cleaning it up, to build a plant there. Mm -hmm. um, but again, this is something that has to be done, I would say, deliberately and in terms of working with the local communities and to really try to to make sure that they're on board with this mm -hmm. and to work with the organizations um to convince them that the benefits of this are much greater than any what they see as potential industrialization of the offshore mm. uh, in this case it really is not I mean, windmills stick up and you can see them. And so, you know, even Ted Kennedy opposed windmills because he didn't want to see them. Well, you hardly see them at the distances they're being built now. Mm -hmm. But we're further offshore and there would be no rig out there except for the initial drilling to, to, to set up uh, the wellbore environment. And then it could be done entirely on a sub-seabed sub, sub um platform to inject into the ground yeah so uh and i i certainly understand after some of the major spills in the gulf of mexico and california from from uh, the bp uh deep water horizon on through the original monterey bay mm -hmm. uh disaster in 1969 um but this is not oil and gas we're not mm -hmm. pumping out oil and gas. We are pumping in CO2. Yeah. And there is no threat of any 
harm to the environment, even if there was leakage, there would be minimum threat to anything. We've selected this one place called the Great Stone Dome. Mm-hmm. But in order to do this, in order to help really address the problem, you, you can't just have one of these plants you or one of these injection sites. You will need to have many of them around the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the disappointing thing is we could have been a leader in 2009 in showing you how this works. Petronova has done a very good job. They have, they're sequestering over a megaton a year. Mm-hmm. And the goal here was to do double that. And we can store basically 50 megatons or 100 megatons. There is one other potential objection. And, you know, I'm a scientist, so I, I'm not trying to sell a bill of goods here. One of the things you have to be concerned about is that if you're pumping fluids into the ground is the potential to cause earthquakes. Mm. We've seen yeah. this in disposal of fracking fluids in Oklahoma, that there has been a spate of earthquakes that have been stimulated by this. Yes. And... There are places where doing this would be potential for increasing earthquakes like in Oklahoma. One thing we can say from our preliminary examinations and some preliminary models that we've done is that it looks like this is one of the better places around to do it in these depths and these locations. We are uh, in an offshore area where there's a great sediment column below this. And it is very hard to basically hydrofract these particular rocks. The pressures that we're going to use would not do that. As I said, my favorite one was Iceland, where they actually went and have done this very successfully recently. And they were absolutely shocked by how much they were able to sequester and turn to stone in Iceland. Uh-huh. We don't know exactly how much the pumping in here is going to turn to stone in these environments. And that's one of the things we have to do to uh, research. We can say that based upon the volumes that we have estimated, you could really store a great amount. And we're talking, we're talking scientific units here, but the we release about 10 billion tons a year of carbon. Mm-hmm. That's thirty six point six gigatons of CO two. Just we measure it in carbon. Mm-hmm. We we can store in this region fifty gigatons in this region. Oh wow! So it's yeah. I mean that's it, it would be uh, like fifty years of the United States output uh-huh. uh, would be stored here. Uh-huh. Okay, because we're producing as the United States one to two gigaton range. Okay. So it'd be like 50 gigatons of the entire United States production of CO2. Of course, this has to go hand in hand with conservation, with movement toward decarbonizing fuels, uh, to moving toward, you know, greener environments, planting, you know, a a trillion trees won't do it by itself. You have to do it all. Okay. And Certainly carbon capture and storage is going to be an absolutely necessary tool in the next 50 years. Awesome. 
Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts. It's been an honor and a pleasure chatting with you this morning. It's been great talking with you. And uh, again, maybe I hope to see you down, down under sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Thank you.